Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. I don't even understand it. That's what makes him God and me not. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. It's where we'll be going today. Ephesians chapter 1. As we continue in this series, the quest for unshakable faith. A series in doctrine, uh, the main core issues of our faith, helping us to have a, a faith that is unshakable, that when the wind and the storms come, we'll have deep roots grounded in God and in His Word. Uh, just by way of reminder and recap, last week Kurt was with us, but the week before that, Pastor uh, started a little section on Jesus, talking about Jesus, the God-man. Jesus, fully God, fully man, 200%, pre-existent one, the one who spoke all things into being and gives us a reason for living. And so we're going to continue to talk about this Jesus, the Jesus we talk about every Sunday here at Sailorville, talking this morning about Jesus, the head of the church. Let's read together. Um, Verse 3 of Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will." According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth. Skip over to verse 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You read that and you realize this passage really has nothing to do with me, does it? We are simply the benefactors in this passage. This passage is all about Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can open it today. We can know who you are, who we are, and who, what you've come to do and what you've done and what you continue to do. Thank you, God, that you are holy, that you cannot be around sin, but you're also loving and gave us a remedy for sin in Jesus. Thank you for the church. Thanks that you love her. Thanks to you that uh, you have begun it and you are the head of it. I pray that you would enlighten our, our minds to understand today and open our hearts to receive from you um, your word May possibly a rebuke or encouragement or a challenge. God, may we be open uh, to whatever your Holy Spirit would lead. And it's all these things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The body is 
inoperable without the head, isn't it? I mean, something could fall from the ceiling and cut off my hand. And if you could get me to the hospital soon enough and we got some skilled doctors, I could go on living. Wouldn't be quite as convenient as it is now, but I, w- I would probably survive. But if something fell from the ceiling and uh, took off my head, you better start looking for a new youth pastor, right? Because the body can't do anything when it is separated from the head. So when we say Jesus is the head of the church, he is everything. We cannot function without him. Ephesians 1, and 23, what we just read says that Christ is the head of the church. Colossians 1, says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might be preeminent. Ephesians 5, 23 says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Jesus and the church are inseparable. They are in a covenant relationship together. And in fact, every marriage, although not perfect like Jesus, is a picture of how marriage should be. And this, no matter what happens, I will continue to go with you because we are in a covenant relationship. And that is the relationship that Jesus has with his church. You can't have Jesus without the church. It's like my friend in high school when he would call me to do something and I'd always ask him, is your girlfriend coming? He'd be like, well, yeah. And I'd be like, well, I got plans then. See, I wanted to hang out with him, but I didn't want to be with his girlfriend at the same time, right? You can't have Jesus and bash on his girlfriend in the church, or in this case, his bride. Okay, so they go hand in hand. I was reading a blog the other day from a guy who's, uh, who writes a Christian blog, and this is what he says about the church. My church is mostly me in a canoe with my dog. My armchair with a cup of coffee is pretty much my church most of the time. That's a wrong idea of the church. Last I checked, the church was the ecclesia, an assembly of people that gathered together to worship God. And of that assembly, Jesus Christ is the head. So what do we mean when we say that Jesus is the head of the church? Not like the head of a company, but as I've mentioned, the head of a body. And as the head, he's superior, he is Lord He's the ultimate authority. He makes the rules. He tells us what to do through his word. And he is the one who is ultimately over everything. And this isn't something he did on his own. God the Father actually made him the head of the church. Look at verse 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. So he gave Christ head over everything and especially his bride, the church. So the Father declared Jesus to be God and also declared him to be the head of the body. But do we really need a whole message on this? I mean, I was kind of sitting there thinking myself. I looked at like the topics that we were going through and whose name was beside him. It's like the problem with sin, the greatness of grace, Jesus, Jesus, uh, God, man, Jesus, the head of the church. And it's kind of like, okay. Never really preached on something like that before. We'll see what we can do. And so I began to ask around different people, what's the significance to you as Jesus being the head of the church? Or what's the first thing that comes to your mind? And many of the people that I talked to, the response was, duh. Right? If he's not the head of the church, then who is? 
And within our Christian context, we say, of course, Jesus is the head of the church. But in our not-so-distant history, this was the issue of the day, an issue that was so intense and important that Christians were martyred for their unwavering stance that Jesus was the head of the church and not the Pope. Little insight from uh, MacArthur here as we look at some of the church history, John Huss, the pre-reformer, said this, to say the Pope is not the head of the church is to lose one's own head. He himself did not actually lose his head, but was burnt at the stake, quoting the Psalms as he died, because he would not say that anyone else but Christ was the head of the church. Have you ever heard the expression, the goose has been cooked? That's from Hus. Hus actually means goose. And when Luther, who would come a little bit after him, would refer to him, he would say, the goose has been cooked. And Luther fought this same battle, and this is what he said. I owe as much loyalty to the Pope as I do the Antichrist. That's pretty intense, right? Scottish Christians, 17th century, thousands were beheaded, burned, and drowned because they signed a petition saying that Christ and Christ alone was the head of the church and not an earthly king. And so for us today, we're not so much signing petitions saying that Christ is the head of the church, but I think many of us are giving into, in the United States here, a Christless Christianity. That is, we replace Christ in our churches as the head with a lot of other good things. Things that we would say, well, that's a good thing to do. But ultimately, those things come up above Christ if we're not careful, kind of in a subtle way. And we'll talk about some of those a little later on. But let's get into this text that we have before us here. And we'll talk about why is Jesus worthy to be the head of the church? Let's look at verse 4 through 6 together of Ephesians chapter 1. It says, Even as he chose the world, that he should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoptions as son through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So I'm just going to give you three reasons why Christ is worthy from this text. And the first one is this. The church was chosen through Christ in eternity past. The church was chosen through Christ in eternity past. God the Father chose all those who would be saved ahead of time. He did this through his son, Jesus. We talked about this a lot over the last previous month as we went through Romans 9 through 11. So we're not going to go in depth with this, but this is such an important doctrine as to understanding that God had the church in mind this whole time and he planned it before you and I ever existed He looked at you in love and says, I am going to make you a part of my church. And he says, I'm going to make a people for myself who are holy and blameless. Does that that sound like your life currently? Probably not, right? If you nodded your head with me, you need to check yourself because you're probably lying. It's right there, all right? So holy and blameless is what he says he's going to make a people for himself. And so what's the beauty about this whole thing is that the Father looks at the church in eternity past. And he looks past all your pimples, all your sins, not that pimples are a sin. But he says, I'm going to make you holy 
and blameless. Because he looks at the church through the lenses of his son Jesus. And although the church in practice is far from holy and blameless, he says, because of Christ, I'm going to make you so. So that when I look at you, I'm going to see you the same way that I see Jesus, who is the holy and blameless and spotless Lamb of God. I'm giving you his status. Then he says, I'm going to take it a step further than that. Not only am I going to give you Jesus' status and I say, have fun, go do your own thing. I'm going to adopt you through Jesus as my own child. I am going to bring you into my family. He says, I'm not going to do this based on your life and what you've done. I'm going to do this based on Jesus' perfect life in your place. That's a good God, right? And it's all done through God, through Christ, out of love. This Trinitarian God frees up our hearts, frees up our will to receive the Son as we were chosen beforehand to be part of his church. Just by way of illustration, let's talk about this being chosen by God as he pursues us with his irresistible grace and his irresistible love. I have a five-year-old, and the first thing she'll tell you is she's not five, she's five and a half. And we had a great opportunity to go with many of our students up to camp this past week. And I got to take my five-year-old with me. Now, she's off her sleep schedule. And uh, so her, like, she's like messed up. She's staying up late, getting up early, going nuts, swimming every single day, go, having a great time. And by about Wednesday, like 3 p.m. hits, and I see her doing this like against the wall. And I'm like, hey, Ava, are you tired? She's like, No. You sure? It's okay. Like, sleeping's like good for you. I am not tired. I don't want to sleep. Right? And so we go on throughout the day. Okay, that's cool. You don't have to sleep. And so we're walking along, and uh, we get in the van, and I happen to take this picture of her. (laughs) Out cold, right? She didn't want to. She was running in the opposite direction, saying, I don't need it, but sleep found her. It found her rather regardless. And then, just like some of you, if you hear baptisms and you think about your own life, if you know Christ, you say, I was going in the complete opposite direction, either through rebellion or trying to earn my own salvation. And God found me when I wasn't looking for him. And that's what's so lovely about this whole thing. And that, do you know what? When Ava woke up, she's like, hey, Dad. I was like, you liked that sleep, didn't you? She's like, yeah, that was awesome. That's exactly what I needed. As there sounds, it's not what we need at the time, but when we come to Christ, this is exactly what I wanted, and this is the fulfillment I was looking for. Let's look at verses 7 through 9. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. You see this transition that takes place here as he stops talking past tense and moves to this present state. Number two is Jesus is currently buying people back from sin and bringing them into his church. That's what redeemed means, to be bought back from the slave market of sin. There are over six million slaves in the Roman Empire. And if you wanted to be free, someone had to pay the price to set you free. 
So you were uh, go at the slave market standing and someone had to come up and say, I'm going to pay what it cost for that slave's freedom. And if, you were pay, if they paid enough, then you were set free from that slavery. And here's this picture of every single one of us on the slave market of sin, bound in our captivity to sin, unable to release ourselves. And Jesus comes along and says, I'm going to pay the price for your freedom. And sin, the price is always the greatest cost, and that is death. And Jesus says, I am going to substitute for myself and the death that you deserved, and I am going to take your place and pay the price with my own blood. Not with silver or gold. I'm not going to take out a loan that I have to pay back, but I'm going to do it all at once right here as 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, knowing that you've been ransomed from your futile ways inherited from their forefathers, now with, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus paid for the church with the price of his own blood. And so you see God the Father drawing us to that moment with Jesus where we repent and we believe, we agree with God about our sins and we turn to Christ. And he makes us a part of this redeemed community, the church, and we come together. And this is how we enter. We enter in through Jesus by being redeemed, being bought back from him, from the slave market of sin. Number three is this. The church will be brought under his rule in the end. Let's look at verses 9 and 10. 9 and 10. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So here's the deal. Jesus isn't finished yet. He's coming back for his church. This time he's not coming as the peasant coming to earth, but he's coming as the king of kings and the Lord of lords, riding on a white horse with a robe that's dipped in blood, ready to come home to his church. All that was lost in Adam will be restored in Christ. The dwelling of God will be with men. The one who is seated on a throne will say, behold, it's finished. I'm the first, the last, I'm making all things new. Christ will rule over everything physically on an earthly kingdom with his bride, his church. Jesus is the past, the present, the future. He's the head of the church, not the pope, not the king, not a pastor. Jesus Christ is the rightful head. And to think of anything else being the head of a church is ridiculous. And so here we are, that rightfully Jesus is the head of the church, but I, I want to propose to us just some, some issues that, might, that are good things that might come up and take the place of, of God as as Jesus is head of the church. And keep in mind, these are all good stuff, stuff that we would say, oh, that's pretty good, but this is the danger here, okay? What's dangerous about it is whatever is the head of your church is where your church finds the justification that they need. There's a lot of good things like the family, things like that that could take over, but I'm just gonna focus on three, and the first one is this, morality. Morality. Michael Horton says, the aim of many churches today is not to tear our fig leaves off so we can be clothed with Christ, but to help us be our own, help us by our own willpower to add a few more. He suggests that we suffer from a Christless Christianity. We have all the appearances. We look really nice, but we're missing the one thing we really need, and that's Jesus. 
And these churches stop preaching doctrine. They start preaching good advice rather than the good news. They preach Jesus as only the example to be followed rather than the Savior. You see this all over the place. You've been to the Christian bookstore lately? There's some good books there, right? But the majority of them are self-help books. And it's not just Osteen, it's everybody. You know, how to be a better you? How to reach your potential with a little bit of Jesus on the side. A church who has, more, who mo- has morality at the head of it is miserable. It's a miserable church. It can never do enough service. It can never be holy enough. It can never read its Bible enough. It can never make his kids look exactly the way they want to. I remember this was a big part of my life, saved by grace, but man, I was a slave to morality. And I remember I was working in a church in Pennsylvania, working a full-time job along with it. I had just had a, our first baby that was born, and I was reading a book, and then the, the book was all about service. And the guy who wrote it had good intentions. I was just reading it incorrectly, okay? And I thought, well, you know what? I'm doing a lot, but I'm not doing a lot for the least of these. So I thought, on top of everything else I'm doing, I need to go serve at the rescue mission. And then I'll be complete as a Christian, and God will say, now you've done it. You've done enough for me to be pleased with you, Brad. And I remember getting in the car and like psyching myself up. I didn't really want to go, but I was like, okay, serving Christ by serving people. Here we go. And I was like pep-talking myself on the way to the, the rescue mission. And I got home, and I thought to myself sitting there on the couch, and I felt like God said, you know, Brad, you could have just stayed home with your wife and new baby. That would have been service enough. I think, yeah, that is true. See, morality is a byproduct of Jesus. Is morality a bad thing? No. Do you want to be a moral person? Do you want your kids to be moral? Absolutely, right? But when we pursue morality before Christ, we end up frustrated. We end up actually damning ourselves rather than saving ourselves. And we find ourselves to be pursuing morality all the time and still coming up short, feeling angry and upset. This seemed really easy for me with my kids when it was all theory. Now that I have my own children, you know, I desire for them to love Jesus, but I also desire for them to have good behavior, right? I mean, maybe I'm not the only one whose kid has freaked out at a restaurant before. Maybe I am, I don't know. Right? We want our kids, we, you know, we, we take it and we do with the discipline in the moment, but we want to keep pushing them towards Christ and say, maybe they don't have the haircut that I desire. Maybe they don't uh, wear what I want them to, but if they love Jesus, that's what I want. That's what I want them to do. And when they love Christ, when you love Christ first, morality will begin to follow that and you'll start to do good things. Number two is Faith. Faith. Man, if I could just have really big faith, then I know I would be a great Christian. I just need to believe a lot more. Here's what I mean, because that could be confusing. It's not faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith that saves you. It's not about mustering up enough faith to believe, and that's gonna, where I'm going to find salvation. But it's about the object of your faith that saves you. Okay, you can believe as much as you want that the Cubs are going to win the World Series. All right, you can have a ton of faith in that. But it's the object of your faith. That's, that's what the Cubs are actually going to do it for you. That's what your faith has to be in. Here's what I mean. I was meeting the other day with a youth pastor in the area who's from a prominent church, has a lot of influence in this area. 
And uh, he, we were a great guy. We were talking about things. And he invited me to come join him for this event where he was coming together with all the churches in the area to say that we are all one. And he, I said, okay, neat. That sounds like a neat idea. And he started telling me what churches were involved. And several of the churches would not have Christ the head of the church, would have clearly be teaching a works-based salvation. And I looked at him and I just said, oh, whoa, 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 what are you doing? Are you serious right now? And he's like, yeah, what's the big deal? And so I took him to the scripture and I said, I, I don't think I can partner with you and I don't think you should be there based on what God's word says. And he looked at me and he said, really the only thing that matters is that we all have faith. It doesn't really matter what that faith is in, but just that we can come together and faith is what brings us together. No. Jesus Christ alone is what brings us together. It's not the strength of our faith. It's the object of our faith. Jesus, as Keller says, every other object of your faith will not save you. The only person that can save is Jesus Christ alone. Number three, social justice. I love the millennial generation. You guys know who the millennial generation is? I made it by one year, okay? Uh, so I'm kind of like on the edge of millennial and Generation X. Well, Generation X, they said, we're going to name it that because they really didn't contribute much to society. <laughs> Sorry for those of you who are Gen Xers. There's probably more of you here and more millennials in the second service because you slept in this morning. But here's what they say about millennials. The 20-somethings, the late uh, teenagers, they say that they, more than anyone else, have a desire to make a difference. They want to change the world. They're motivated more than the previous generations, more than anyone, to, ch- to make a difference in the world. And I saw this last week when I was at camp. I mean, the kids walking around with t-shirts on about changing the world, digging wells, doing all kinds of crazy stuff because they want to make an impact. Even as I worked in the coffee house at uh, both the Ankeny, Chris, or the Ankeny High Schools, the kids were walking around with t-shirts from a church that said, do prom differently. And where their idea was that they were going to buy used dresses for prom, they weren't going to rent tuxes, and they were going to save the hundreds of dollars and give it to people who were in need. I was like, whoa, that is awesome, right? I mean, we love that. This younger evangelical generation is more concerned about the poor, digging wells, about sex trafficking, and orphans than any, of any other time. And that's exciting. And it's also biblical. Right? I mean, just take a look at this one. Isaiah 58, 10 through 11. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light raise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday and the Lord will guide you continually. Woo! That's a good verse, isn't it? But let me just speak to us. Us younger and the older as well. If you look in the scriptures, you will find that the main goal is not eliminating poverty. It's not the main job of the church. Helping the world and the less fortunate is full of compassion, and that is in Scripture, but it's not the main story. Jesus is. It's about a holy God who keeps his promises to unholy people. And he comes and enters their mess, and he dies in their place. He, yes, Jesus was concerned about their poverty. He himself not having a place to lay his head. But he was more concerned for their spiritual poverty. So much so that for, his, for our sakes, he became poor 
so that through his poverty we might become rich. So a church should be concerned about social justice, but they should never talk about it more than they talk about the gospel, more than they talk about Jesus. It shouldn't replace the preaching of the word. And a church that has Christ at his head will be concerned for the poor, but they won't do it because they feel like God will justify them because of that. They do it because they already have been justified. So as you look for a church, those of you who are going away to college or whatnot, look for a church that loves people but loves the gospel and Jesus Christ even more. So these are good things that can easily become the head of the church. Let's look briefly just a a couple of implications if Jesus is the head of our church. The first one is this. Pastors are under shepherds. Pastors are under shepherds. Acts 20 Verse 28 says, Pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So as I asked around to different people, what's the significance of Christ being the head of the church? Tyler Betts said to me, he said, It's significant to me because I know that men will fail, but Jesus never will. See, if you build your hope on a pastor of a church, if you build your hope on Pastor Pat, you will be disappointed. We will be late to meetings. We'll miss appointments, not on purpose. We might forget your anniversary unless you post it on Facebook to remind us. We will sin. We will mess up because we're growing along with you. And yes, the pastor has authority given by the Holy Spirit, but we are not the ultimate authority. We are under shepherds. The true pastor is Jesus. So we follow his lead because he never fails, he never gives up, and he never stops. And he gives us his revealed word for how to run the church. That's why Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Number two, we preach Christ or we preach Jesus. I promise you this. Listen, I promise you. You will not go a Sunday here at Sailorville without hearing the name of Jesus. Multiple times. And you will also hear about what he has done, his work, and what he is planning to do right now. Because if we don't have Jesus, we don't have a church. Everything we do flows through Jesus. He's our motivation for serving. He's our motivation for evangelism and for, and for holiness and everything else. Martin Lord jo- Lloyd-Jones talks about what he calls a synagogue message. And he says it's very easy in a church to preach moral principles and never get to Christ. He says if you do that, you've completely failed. If you can preach a message that in a synagogue and they're okay with it, you haven't done your job. Not to say that like every single verse you're like, oh, there's Jesus there, you know, that's, but you need to get back to Christ and his atonement and what he has accomplished. Principles are good as long as they are rooted in Christ. After all, that's what Jesus showed the disciples on the road to Emmaus, that all the scriptures pointed back to him. And here's the deal practically. You and I need to hear about Jesus. Even if we know Christ, we need to hear him preached. 
We just had our, our third baby girl, and she's awesome. But I tell you what, it's been a tough transition. And many of you, when I tell people that, they, they turn to me and they say, they're trying to be helpful, they say, just wait till you have like four. <laughs> and I'm like, I know that you had good intentions with that, but that's not helpful, right? But it's been a tough transition, and I, I haven't always done the best. In fact, there were times that I heard the baby crying in the night, and I pretended like I was asleep. There were times that I wasn't helpful, and in my frustration and lack of sleep, I said things that I should not have. I sinned. And when I come to church, I needed to hear not some principles that'll last me maybe for the week, if that. I needed to hear about Jesus. Because here's what Jesus tells us He says, You're wrong, but you're loved. You're wrong, but you're loved. He says, listen, you look at my perfect life. I'm the standard. You look at yours. You're wrong. You're not living correctly, but you're loved in me. And that motivates you to keep on going, to apply some of those godly principles because they're rooted in my love for you and my acceptance of you. And some of you, you're here this week and you have messed up. Maybe even last night before you came here, you looked at pornography. I don't know what, what you've done. You're sitting there guilt-ridden. You're thinking, I, I don't even, shouldn't even be here right now. This is the best place for you to be. You need to hear about Christ. You need to hear that you're wrong, but you are loved. Jesus is the one that makes the difference. Right? Philippians 2, 10 through 11. It says that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth. He's the one that makes the difference. I was uh, at men's retreat when I had just started here. And I was put in charge of uh, running the golf tournament. And uh, it, w- it had gone off pretty well. We were all gathered together to, uh, to, to be set out on the course. And it was my turn to pray to head every- send everybody out. And so Pastor Pat and Pastor Dave Heisterkamp are kind of standing like 20 feet away from me. And I prayed and I was like, hey, that went pretty well. And as I turn around, Pastor Pat's over there and he's like, this is how I prayed. I said all these nice things and then I said, in your name, amen. And of course, you know, I don't think Pastor Pat would have a problem with that. He's not particular about those things. Uh, But he looks at me and he says, hey, Brad, whose name were you praying in? Who are you praying to? I was like, well, God, of course. And he, of course, he and Dave were like, oh, that's a good one. That was good. You know, and they're having a good time. But he was so right. Jesus is what makes the difference. And you know, some of us, we need to work hard. And when we get to church, with all the busyness and the craziness going on, we need to work hard at making Christ the object of our praise while we're here, not just doing church. So I would encourage you. One thing that I do, and this, we're getting real practical here, okay? I lay my clothes out the night before, before I go to church, um, so that I'm ready to go. I get the check ready for, t- for tithe and things like that. Get as much ready as you can so that when you come in those doors, you're ready to hear from God. Remember I said, though, whatever is the head of the church is this justification? The same thing is true of your life. The same thing is true of your life. So if you're a moral person, if you're a, a good person that does a lot of good things, you serve. You're, you've done a lot of good stuff, and, but you're looking to that for your justification. 
Let me tell you this from Jesus. You're wrong. And some of us, we don't like to hear that. In, a, in the tolerant age, don't tell anybody they're wrong. I'm not telling you that. Jesus is. Look at this. Romans 5.8 says this. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And what does that verse say? It says that God loves us, but it also tells us we're wrong because we're sinners. Sinners are people that have done wrong. And so that verse says, you've done wrong, but look at this. I'm going to demonstrate my love and die in your place. Notice what that verse doesn't say. It doesn't say you're wrong, clean up a little bit, start doing a lot of good stuff, and then in my love, I'll come and die for you. No, it says, in the midst of your sin, in the midst of everything going on in your life, I'm demonstrating my love for you, and I'm coming, and I'm dying in your place. So if you're wrong this morning, would you admit that to God? Turn to him from your sin. Turn to the one that that can make you right. The only one who can. And perhaps you're here this morning, and you're a Christian, and you've fallen into some of those things where those morality, other things have become the head of your life. You've fallen into that, a workspace growth in Christ. Let me challenge you to look to the head of the church. Look to Jesus. Continue to look to him. Follow him. Draw near to him. And he will draw near to you. And you will continue to grow in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus, he's the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things were created by him and through him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. Let's pray. We thank you that you are the head of the church, Jesus. Man fails, you do not. God, we thank you that you tell us when we're wrong, but you give us an opportunity to be made right, and you do it out of love. God, I pray for those that are in this room that aren't in a right relationship with you. Their sin is keeping them from you. God, may they see that they need to be redeemed. They need to be bought back from sin by believing that your blood is what takes sins away. God, I pray for the Christian here that's, that's prone to morality instead of looking to Christ. God, I pray for our church. Hundreds of years from now, this church continues. God, may it be a church that sees Jesus as the head, that it, is, it holds its word high as the ultimate authority. We thank you that you are coming back for your church, and we anticipate that day. Thank you, and in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.